Your mission, Raiders of the Lost podcast, should you choose to accept it, is make the greatest movie podcast episode about Mission Impossible. This show will self-destruct in five seconds. Duh, 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 duh. I always get anxiety. Isn't I feel like five seconds isn't enough, and I always think the explosion is going to be massive. Yeah, then it just ends up being smoke. Yeah, but anyways, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James, and today we're doing Mission Impossible versus Mission Impossible 6 Fallout, which are... The two best films in the franchise, in my opinion, and I think Mission Impossible 6 Fallout is just one of the best action movies ever made, in my opinion. Yeah, Mission Impossible, the 96 one, really set the stage for the franchise. And uh, it's not that this isn't so much like versus which one's better, but I really find fascinating how different the two films are where the franchise started with the first one and where it wound up in. It took a few, I think, one through three to really find the footing for the franchise and, and discover what a Mission Impossible movie is, what fans expect to see in it, and what we love about it. And right now, they're firing on all cylinders with uh, Rogue Nation and uh, Fallout. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie wrote and directed both of them, and I think they are a couple of the best action films made in the last decade. The best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is become a patron. Head on over to patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast, or find the link on our website, Raiders of Lost Podcast.com. Patrons get perks like personalized videos, messages, behind-the-scenes footage, and schedules for upcoming episodes. On our brand-new website, you can also check out all of our merch, our custom movie posters, and all of our sources of content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, where you can follow and hit notifications to stay up-to-date with new episodes. I'm wearing our, our official Raiders hoodie. It's Let's very go. comfortable. Let's go. we got the hat right here. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and I think Fallout, Mission Impossible 6, kind of is the most alike or like more of a throwback in terms of some of the styles of the missions and the writing and some of the action set pieces to the original one in a way. And I mean, we're talking about like the twist ending and the the twist villain. So I think, and also the use of those Mission Impossible espionage techniques with the masks and and uh, the fake sets and everything like that. So it's not like they weren't used in the other Mission Impossible films, but I don't think they used the fake sets in 2 through 5 at all, which I love that aspect of both 1 and, and 6. Yeah, you're talking about the opening scene of Fallout where they tricked that terrorist into giving up the the passcode to, to, to gather the information on his phone. And that is the opening scene of the first Mission Impossible. And there, I think that the new one... It has a lot of nods to the original franchise that, I mean, obviously there are parts that are a little outdated, but they poke fun at stuff. Like, for example, Walker, Henry Cavill's character, uh, kind of makes fun of the IMF masks, saying, like, you guys are just a bunch of people in rubber masks running around. And then he goes, does anyone even actually fall for the masks? And then he does end up falling for the mask in the film later on. So I think they poke fun in a loving way at the 
uh, at the idea and concepts of the first Mission Impossible, but it's done with love, and I, I think they really showed that. It's kind of like the new James Bond, Skyfall, um, nodding back to the original James Bond movies. Yeah, and just, just so you guys know, there's going to be some pretty good amount of spoilers in this episode. Like usual, spoilers are abound, and of course, you can't talk about Mission Impossible without the one and only Tom Cruise, who is the reason this franchise exists. Obviously, the TV show ran from like the late 60s to early 70s, and then it was rebooted in the 1980s for, for some time. But then it kind of died, and Paramount had the rights to the movie, but they never really did anything with it. And then Tom Cruise in the 90s was so popular. He's the biggest star on the planet, probably still is if you, if you think about it. And he could pretty much pick and choose what he wanted to do at the time, and he started his production company with Paulo Wagner, and he wanted artists uh yeah or and at the time it was called cruise wagner productions mm -hmm. and so he them two wanted to make a mission impossible film because he was a huge fan of the show when he was younger and again he could have done anything and he chose that and i think he's the perfect operator of this vehicle of a franchise yeah i think um a lot of people would be surprised is that to know that tom cruise developed these projects on his own basically he was inspired by the show he was a and big, wagner too and wagner but he was a big fan of the show growing up and he developed the first mi film as a starring vehicle for him as a franchise starter so he created the mission impossible franchise of what it is today it's not like a production company was making the movie and they hired an actor like he was there from day one and he's also very heavily involved in the story outlines and the plots of the movies he helps develop the stories and tom cruise uh, is very much involved in the action set pieces he often comes up with the action scenes on his own and the stunt work he designs on his own and um, he goes into each movie with a bunch of ideas like i want to do this crazy stunt or we can have this great action set piece and so he generally goes to the writers and the producers with uh, a few action set pieces in mind, and then they craft the story around those set pieces because they discovered the Mission Impossible structure depends upon big set pieces with plot in between. So it goes like action scene, plot, action scene, plot, action scene, plot, and they design the story based upon what this what the action sequence is for example in rogue nation he wanted to do underwater diving and hold his breath for a while so they designed the, the plot of the story to go around computer underwater that he needs to go inside and so they designed the store the stories based upon what he comes up with for stunt work yeah it seems like him and the producers just come up with crazy ideas for action scenes and then they're like hey writers try to figure out how this all ties together in a cohesive story that people people can follow and he's heavily engaged in the He's a producer in all these films, obviously, but he's also engaged in the narrative and the story of the film. So he also, you know, there are rumors of creative differences with Brian De Palma on the first film, which is why Brian De Palma kind of, once it was done with production, he just left and he didn't do any of the press or anything for it because I think he was unhappy with how production was going on set. But I mean, again, it's Tom Cruise's vehicle and he pretty much owns the rights to the film with Paramount. And also, any female, aspiring female screenwriters, producers, filmmakers really look into... Paula Wagner, she's a great producer. She's done pretty much all of Tom Cruise's films until about 2016. So she's had an incredible impact on the film industry and action film industry in in general. And um, their production company actually split in 2008, but they still kept working together for another eight years on films. So she has 20 films under her belt, all massive productions. That's like a lot of people don't even know who Emma Thomas is. Yeah. the um, uh, Christopher Nolan's wife, and she produces all of his films like these are the biggest movies getting made and they're produced by women so a lot of people don't even know that but uh, you should definitely look into those two they have a lot they're fantastic producers and film producers are a very important role to any production they're pretty much in charge of 
from the conception of the idea and the screenwriting process and the they get the movie made yeah pre-production yeah. during production post-production marketing so they're they're involved in every single facet and yes the director's in charge of the creative vision but they're in charge of the movie actually getting made there's a reason why when a movie wins best picture the producers get up and accept the award not Some, the director unless sometimes the, the director a producer. yeah if the director's involved but oftentimes it's it's like sometimes they're producers but most of the time it's just producers there's a team of producers who make movies and uh, the the mission franchise i think what we've come to grow in love about these movies is just watching tom cruise just be tom cruise and that's that means like being a daredevil being the ultimate stuntman and being just like this lunatic not not lunatic just being, he's a lunatic yeah okay he's a lunatic on and off camera but and and i love like it. inspiring to watch this guy just put his life on the line time and time again just for our entertainment and there's something really great about that i think yeah especially in the last Three, not that all of the other stunts in the other films aren't incredible and nuts, but, but there was a lot of CGI used in the other, uh, yeah. in the first three. But he hurts for you. He hurts for his audience, and especially Mission Impossible Six Fallout. And he goes through a lot, and he's adamant about doing all of his own stunts because, again, because he's so involved with storytelling. And he's, I think, he's a great storyteller in general. Whenever he's on a production, he really knows how the audience is engaging with with the scenes and the and the stories and the characters, and he really believes in being the person that's performing the tasks of the character and he believes in as many practical effects as possible being used and you know he's he's basically like the modern day buster keaton who was a silent film star and he was very well known for putting his life on the line during productions of movies and like there's this scene on um what is it the the general where he's on the front of the train he has the to train one yeah. yeah so he has to throw that giant piece of wood to knock the other piece of wood off the train track that's really a train he's really moving on a train right there and then the giant building collapsing and he he just uh, stands, stands underneath where the window yeah, falls on top. Yeah, the window is. So he, I think, he even broke his neck on the on the filming production of a movie too, and he didn't even go to a doctor for like a month because he wanted to finish it. So I think that Tom Cruise is the modern day Buster Keaton. This episode is sponsored by Writer Duet, the new standard for screenwriting software. Writer Duet has paired up with our podcast to offer a very special promotion. Head on over to writerduet.com/raiders. Again, writerduet.com/raiders to sign up for a thirty day free trial of their software. Writer Duet makes the screenwriting process easy and streamlined. It has cloud-based access. It makes sure that the format of your script looks correct and perfect. Again, head on over to writerduet.com slash Raiders to sign up for the 30-day free trial. It's great software. I actually signed up and started using it the other day. Are you writing a Teletubbies screenplay? <laughs> <laughs> Teletubbies Origins. Origins. <laughs> Origins of the Rainbow. <laughs> I think he does the stunts for two reasons. First of all, I'm sure he's having a fun time and like being able to play with all these toys. Like he learns how to fly jets. He learns how to fly helicopters. Like the, and he works with like the most amazing stunt teams and special ops teams to develop the skills. So I'm sure it's like so much fun to do all this stuff. But on top of that, what Tom wants, he, he wants the audience to see his face in these action sequences. He doesn't want it to be a stunt double where they, you get, you, he's shot from far away. Cause it's, it's obviously not the actor or, and obviously it's not his face and or if it is they cgi the face on it doesn't look good and he wants you to he wants you to see that it's him there in the moment performing the stunt because it keeps you invested in the story and invested in that moment and i think that it really pays off every time yeah and i think that cruise and the mission impossible films have just really set the bar so high that it's created this culture of other actors wanting to do their own stunts which not all of them really do even close to as many as Tom Cruise does in, ter in terms of the dangerous stuff. Like Henry Cavill does all of his own stunts in Mission Impossible Fallout, except for the Halo jump. He's not allowed to do stuff like that. 
and pretty much all other actors. I mean, Daniel Craig does a lot. Daniel Craig does a lot of uh, action and, and stunts in the James Bond films, but he still doesn't do 100% of them. But I think that he's created this culture of actors in, in action films trying to do as much in-camera practical uh, stunt work with their lead actors and actresses. But again, no one even comes close to Mission Impossible in, in what they've done. Yeah, because Tom is not just an experienced stuntman, but he's a professional, like, high-class stunt driver. He can do anything behind the wheel of a car and a motorcycle, and the guy flies jets. Like, guy does everything. And I actually made a list of um, the most insane stunts that he's done for the Mission Impossible franchise. I was just going to list them off. If yeah, you, list if them off, and we'll, often we'll talk about each one real quick. Yeah. So in, in Mission Impossible Fallout, there's that famous helicopter sequence where where uh, Walker is chasing after uh, Ethan Hunt on the helicopters, and um, Tom Cruise um, does this crazy stunt. And what it is is he nose dives the helicopter down this valley, nose diving, and he has to he has to spin the helicopter in a corkscrew corkscrew spin 360 degrees while he's nose diving. And this is a the most dangerous stunt you can perform with a helicopter and um, many consider the most difficult thing to do with a helicopter. And it, Tom Cruise trained for 16 hours per day until he met the required quota of 2,000 hours of time behind the, uh, behind the helicopter. And um, he also performed the stunt while he was operating the camera and acting at the same time. Yeah, it's incredible. So Tom Cruise was nosediving helicopter, spinning at 360 degrees, Operating the camera and acting the scene out. And technically directing too because he's in control of everything in the scene. Yeah, so if you watch behind the scenes videos, there's literally, it's just him and McQuarrie, the director, and the stunt team. And Chris Tom Cruise is doing everything. He's like telling everyone what to do. He's like, they got models of the helicopters. And he's he literally designs the action set, set pieces. And he helps the entire team figure out what they're going to do. Um, all the maneuvers. And I think he's, people underestimate how heavily involved he is in it. Yeah, and one of his... Things in, to his benefit, obviously, is he's, he's very wealthy and being this top actor. He he also is a very private person. We all know in Scientology and everything like that. And that part of his life is big. It's obviously full of conspiracy and and, and uh, speculation. Sells and, magazines. Yeah, and obviously, you know, him and his family, those issues. But he also has this giant building that is just like the Tom Cruise building in the Scientology area, I think in Florida is where he, his main headquarters. It's like the Tom Cruise Scientology mm -hmm. headquarters. He has like a five, six story building. It looks like a like a hotel, but it's all him. <laughs> but an entire floor of that is like his training, including like this supposedly massive flight simulator. So that's how he's able to train so much so frequently in terms of flying planes and helicopters and all the other stunt work that he does. Apparently, I think he's training for space right now. Yeah, so he's probably yeah. got a fake space shuttle inside of his giant Scientology Tom Cruise <laughs> building. And then uh, the next famous stunt would be the plane stunt in Rogue Nation in which uh, Tom Cruise had to cling onto the side of an airplane as it took off and flew over 1,000 feet into the air at a speed of 100 knots. And the stunt was so dangerous that even if a small speck of debris like flew into his face, it would like go through his skull. That's how like like if it went through his eye? Yeah, it, it, he'd be dead. He had to wear special contacts to cover the entire orifice of his eye. So they were like complete contacts because otherwise the wind would destroy your eyeballs. Mm -hmm. So, And it's a stunt that um, obviously is incredibly dangerous, but he, Tom Cruise is such a perfectionist. He made them do it eight times, the, the, the takeoff and landing. And it, he spent seven to eight minutes on the side of the plane each time. Absolutely insane. And it looks it's amazing a, because it's real. Yeah, and Christopher McQuarrie is a great director and... Uh, he's uh, obviously a big fan of the same things that Tom is in terms of filmmaking and realism. And like for a shot like that, 
he just sticks a, a camera onto the plane, a nice wide lens, and you can see everything. There's no cuts. There's no crazy, like, uh, a, a crane or uh, another camera on a, a helicopter or something. It's just static on the on the plane, and it really, the only thing that's moving is Tom. That's what makes it work, the shot work. Another really impressive stunt would be the underwater sequence in Rogue Nation. Um, and Tom Cruise, he had to jump off a 120-foot ledge down into a 20-foot tank of water. And then he had to hold his breath for six minutes in order to perform the entire scene. And Tom Cruise trained with military special ops experts and learned how to lower his heart rate to an extremely low uh, heartbeats per minute in order to perform the task of holding his breath that long. Because a lot of people can hold their breath that long, but he's acting and swimming throughout the entire scene for six minutes. So he had to really lower his heart rate and move around because you're using so much oxygen just, just from moving minor movements swimming yeah tons of oxygen you have to save it and actually i think kate winslet she's in an upcoming action film and she actually broke his record i think for underwater for avatar for avatar yeah, yeah. so she broke his record for underwater breath holding for film oh no way for anyone who doesn't know kate winslet's an avatar yeah too fun so. fact yes. yeah so she broke that record that yeah. he had and another uh, impressive one from fallout is that fantastic motorcycle escape in the streets of paris and tom cruise rode this motorcycle through paris at over 100 miles per hour at times, and 70 other stuntmen were driving cars in the sequence. So a lot of the cars in that sequence are actually real. They're not CGI. And they had to drive against traffic. So Tom Cruise was riding his motorcycle against traffic in that big uh, roundabout, the rotary. And a lot of the cars, most of the cars were driving in opposite direction of him, and he had to maneuver around them. And most of those are actually stunt drivers driving real cars. So many people are going to be like, what is a rotary? That's what we call roundabouts <laughs> in New England, guy. In Boston. Yeah, 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 And on top of that, he wasn't wearing a helmet. Yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. I think the most impressive stunt would be the halo jump in, mm. in Mission Impossible Fallout. And the halo jump is a specialized jump from a plane where you jump from an altitude of 25,000 feet from the plane. And then you wait until you're at 2,000 feet in elevation to open your parachute. Usually, when if you sky if you skydive, you jump out, and then after several seconds, then you deploy your parachute, and then you just glide the way down the whole time. But Tom Cruise for the halo jump, he just dove down the entire time, and he, he hit speeds of up to 160 miles per hour towards Earth. And then you wait until you're at 2,000 feet, then you pull out the parachute. So it's a very dangerous jump. You have to be a a, a professional to be able to do this and. On top of that, they shot the scene at sunset. They wanted it to be at sunset. No CGI. We're going to actually shoot this with real sun in the because background. Because you need a, as much minimal light as possible. And that just that golden hour right before sunset is when it looks dark out, but you still get some light. Otherwise, they'd yeah. just be blackness. Because they wanted to be able to see, but then when they were going into Paris, they wanted all the lights of Paris at nighttime to really illuminate because no one had ever seen Paris shot like that on film before. And so... In order to do this, they only had a three-minute window to do the jump each day. And so they spent 106 days doing this jump at that one time period for three minutes. I think they got four takes that are usable because for the opening of the jump, the cameraman is running backwards, and he jumps off He jumps off first, and then he keeps the camera on Tom as Tom jumps out. And they got that shot where Tom glides right into camera and you can see his face and you see oh that's really tom cruise yeah and that's one of my favorite shots in any action movie i've ever seen or in, in film in general because it starts as a one take and this the one take starts when ethan walks over to the ramp of the carrier and he sees that there's lightning and then the, it cuts to a shot of him in front of him pov looking down 
at the lightning. Then he turns to go to Walker. And this is a one take from here until after he jumps. Yeah. But what they did is Henry Cavill didn't jump. There's a moment where Henry Cavill's character, Walker, is off camera. And he just hides behind that little bundle of packages. And then a stuntman is the person that jumps out at first from the plane. And then from there, it's still the one take holding. And then Tom and the cameraman jump out. So it's super complex, super complicated, and very, very dangerous. But again... They wouldn't let Henry Cavill do it because Tom told him, basically, if you do this, you're probably going to kill somebody or all of us. Because, again, this is like you said, this is very high intense training required. This isn't something that Henry Cavill could have trained for like a month to do. Tom Cruise spent an entire year training for this stunt alone. Yeah, not just the training, but also the way they're going to block it out once they're falling. And they also not just only from jumping from planes, but also using those those chambers that uh, kind of simulate falling and yeah. skydiving. So they actually had to block out everything that they're, they're what they're doing in the air is on by accident. It's very, very planned and coordinated. It's no wire work, man. It's dancing it's skydiving. It's incredible. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Manscaped. The leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming Manscaped has sent us everything they sell. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping year-round. They sent us their t-shirts, their boxer briefs, their colognes, deodorizers, everything's fantastic, especially their lawnmower 3.0 groomer. It's waterproof, has a light on it. You can use it in the shower. It's the best clippers you'll ever use in your entire life, I promise. Fellas, get on Manscaped for all your grooming needs. Get out of lockdown. If you've been lazy, it's time to clean up. Coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Ladies and gentlemen, these are perfect gifts for the men in your life. Get on Manscaped. I promise they will not be disappointed. And then uh, another great stunt from Fallout is it's called the long line. And a long line is the scene at the end of Fallout where um, Tom, where Ethan Hunt is trying to figure out how to stop the bomb from going off and he sees the two helicopters taking off and then he jumps onto the payload of the second helicopter and, and it's like this dangling payload is hanging by a rope um and uh, ethan hunt jumps onto that and then he starts climbing up the helicopter now what happens is tom cruise climbed up this rope while the helicopter was over 2,000 feet in the air while it was moving <laughs> and then he dangled on the i don't know what you call the bottom of the helicopter like the legs feet, the legs he was hanging from those legs, and then he had to free fall 40 feet onto that payload at the bottom of the rope, and he had to bounce off of it. And it took a few takes, but apparently many people said this was the most dangerous stunt he did. He was attached to the wire, and they just CGI it out, but still, who knows what could happen, and it's a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah, exactly. They're 2,000 feet in the air on a helicopter. Yeah, who knows what yeah. could happen. With, it, with a dangling payload, which I'm sure wasn't very heavy, but still. Yeah, the people were saying that if the wind was pretty dangerous, it could have possibly killed him yeah and they shot the sequence i know it takes place in the film in Kashmir, which i think is in the middle india india but it's actually they filmed this in norway yeah so those high altitude areas and their mountains and the wind who knows what it's like oh and speaking of high altitude it, it's so high altitude that you get dizzy so he the stunt was even harder to perform physically and on top of that the the brace that was wrapped around him it cut off the circulation from his chest up so his hands were numb the whole time insane <laughs> And then uh, I, my one of my favorite uh, action stunt pieces is the, the rooftop jump. And I think we, we've spoken about this before, but it's the scene when Ethan is chasing um, Walker across Paris. And he's using, he's like running across rooftops and trying to find the fastest route to get to him. And there's a scene where um, Ethan Hunt jumps from one building roof to another building roof. And Tom Cruise really did perform this stunt. They did this in one take. It was fantastic. But what happened was when Tom Cruise jumped while he was in the air, he accidentally stuck his foot out a little early. And so when he landed into the, the next building, 
his foot went first and it completely snapped in half. Yeah, it, his ankle broke. Yeah, right? his ankle he, broke. He was supposed to land so that like his arms were on the top of the yeah. roof and his body was just dangling from the side. Yeah, but his his left foot went out in front of him and you can you can see footage in photos like you can see it snap in half when he lands. And and, they kept the take. Yeah, and what happens is rather than stopping and calling for help and getting help, uh, Tom Cruise just climbs up that building and then runs, continues running and finishes the scene. You can see him limping. Uh, as he finishes the run, and he they kept that shot in the in the film of when he's limping off into the, off camera. But again, this shows one of the risks that is involved with doing your own stunts, and why a lot of actors their production won't let them do their own stunts because if they get a serious injury like Tom Cruise got here, it shuts down production that day. It shuts it down immediately. So yeah. Tom Cruise had to take a six month or, or six week, I mean two month hiatus to recover and rehab. He actually went into a twelve hour a day rehab to recover from this because within a six and within six weeks or two months, they had to start filming again. And within like three months, he had to be sprinting for the film. So he actually had to rehab an almost impossible to heal injury in that amount of time with 10 to 12 hours a day of rehab. And some of the doctors even said he probably wouldn't even run in nine months, but he, he's such a crazy maniac who knows what he was doing to rehab. And he was able to sprint three months later. And that entire sequence of him running from rooftop to rooftop, the entire chase sequence, it's him after his recovery. So he re that the entire sequence, imagine that. He broke his ankle like, like two months before that. I stubbed my toe. I'm out of commission for like a week. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think uh, fans like us, we love and appreciate the sacrifice that this guy does uh, with each one of these movies. And it makes all the difference because every time a new Mission Impossible is coming out, you're like, I can't wait to see the stunt. I can't wait to see the stunt. Oh, I forgot one more. And for the building scene in Ghost Protocol, Tom Cruise scaled the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world. It stands at 2,700 feet tall, so quite tall. And Tom Cruise, in, the stunts involved Tom Cruise climbing up 1,700 feet on the, on the windows. And then he had to fall down, free fall down, four stories. And then he had to run down the side of the building, uh, which is uh, called rappelling. Uh, and then he jumped off the building and scale the windows so it's an unbelievable stunt and it was the most famous part of that film ghost protocol let's move on to the first film mission impossible which came out in 1996 it was directed by brian de palma it's based on the story and television show by bruce geller an american agent under false suspicion of disloyalty must discover and expose the real spy without the help of his organization and again this is tom cruise's project his baby Budget of, I think, $80 million, and it ended up grossing like 450 box office in 1996. That's a lot of money, and it actually broke Jurassic Park's record at the time. So it was incredibly popular, and this was the biggest. I know people like to call it like a great action film, but this movie doesn't have a ton of action sequences if you actually sit down and watch it. There's a lot of, you know, Ethan Hunt kind of sitting at a computer for a good amount of time because they were writing the movie while they were filming, so they were kind of jumbling all these ideas together, and the action set pieces are, of course, fantastic, but the action is probably the most minimal of all of the Mission Impossible movies. And that's because the TV show was light on action. It was very much mystery and espionage uh, and secrecy. And this film adapted that. You'd be surprised that uh, this is considered a big action film. Only five gunshots are fired in the, entire, in the entire film, and none of them are fired by Tom Cruise. He doesn't even fire a gun in this movie. That's how low, low it is on the action scale. But what this is instead is it's... 
it's a great mystery. It's got espionage. It's a, like a slow burn thriller. And Brian De Palma did a great job directing this. He uses like a lot of Dutch angles to to convey uh, mystery and suspense. And I think it's a, a really great character driven movie. Uh, and it, this was a great introduction introduction to the character of Ethan Hunt, which is not a character from the TV show. This, these are all new characters, except from, for Jim. Yeah, Jim played by John Boyd. Yeah, Jim's in the original series, but otherwise. None of the characters from the TV show are in it, so it's a completely fresh idea. Yeah, and what I love about it is it, it feels like a Cold War espionage film more than anything. And what I love the way that De Palma filmed it was with these beautiful and like large sets, like obviously on a soundstage, but these these huge sets that make it look like they filmed it in the 1960s with just better cameras. And even the lighting looks very old fashioned in a way. And it's it almost doesn't seem like a contemporary film at times until you see like the those old 1995 Macintosh laptops, which, by the way, <laughs> this was when Steve Jobs was kicked out of Macintosh, and they weren't even using the the right software on camera. They used better-looking software, so it's just BS, but it was an advertisement for Macintosh at the time. And without that technology and, like, how, like, they have to try to find that signal, which takes forever just to transfer, like, 100 <laughs> megabytes and— Like, and, 5 megabytes. And floppy disks at the time so were high floppy disks. So they're all over the place. But if you didn't see that tech, it would seem like this could take place in 1968. I love the scene when he's sending emails to Job 314, and it's it's got an animation of an actual letter being sent. <laughs> to <Lindbergh. laughs> That's what it's like. <laughs> and so I love the sets. I love the, the production design and— it just brings that classic aesthetic to the filmmaking and that Brian De Palma clearly loves because he's made a lot of these great thrillers, but also he was very big in the 80s with, with this style. And this has a great cast. John Voight and, and Jane Reno and and Ving Rhames. And, and so I think Tom Cruise understood that. An ensemble with great caliber actors would work out really well. And I think I think for Jane Reno and, and Ving Rhames, I think... Tom Cruise is a big fan of the Leon the Professional and Pulp Fiction. He's like, yeah, I want those guys in my movie. Yeah, and, and Jean Reno found huge success with with uh, that film with American audiences, and that's why that's what brings him into the film. It, it just brings an extra quality to it with having someone from like another country that's not from America, or, or with all the English actors and everything, and also the international esque quality to films like Christopher Nolan adds to his films this international espionage makes the scale of the film seem really large and the scope of it seem high and the stakes even higher. Yeah, and, and De Palma and the screenwriters and, and, and Tom, they really set up the the concept of Mission Impossible and the Impossible Mission Force with a... Horrible that, name, but sound, <laughs> IMF sounds good, but yeah. when you say Im Impossible Mission Force... I'm, yeah, you're right. But um, in that great opening scene where they stage the confession without torture methods or violence but they do it with just with manipulation and like these fake sets and and they act too and they wear the masks and the costumes and the wardrobe and everything it's it's really fun and um one of the, but i would say one of the weaknesses of the film is we meet this team early on and john voigt's the lead of the of the team played and he plays jim and he's doing the rundown and you know Emilio estevez is there with the other characters Emilio! and mighty duckling himself in uh these are great they were big actors at the time in the 90s and and then, but they just, they die so soon that it seems like it would have been better if some of them maybe survived a little longer because that's what This I, is the Tom Cruise show, bro. Yeah, but that's what <laughs> I love about, survive. that's what I love about Fallout and the other ones is like yeah. Benji's there the whole time, Luther's there the whole time. And so I think that's one of the weaknesses of this film because believe it or not, Mission Impossible, the first one's rotten at 57% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that we put much stock into it, but I mean, a lot of people aren't huge fans of it. Well, I would disagree because they, he does, he, he recruits the team. True, in I know. Second half of the film. I just mean in terms of having big actors like Emilio. I understand, but Emilio actually did it as a favor for Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise 
uh, cameoed in one of Emilio Estevez's films. They're old friends. So oh, okay. It's kind you know of like uh, he's returned, like, hey, you cameoed in my movie. And uh, can it, uh, he's like, I cameoed in your movie. How about you cameo in my movie? That's like such a fun favor to do for somebody. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you want to be in my movie? Like for us, I just like wash your spoon if it's in the sink. Emilio Estevez isn't even credited. That's uh, how much of a cameo it is. That's nuts. So I don't, have a, I don't have a problem with it because he establishes the team in the second half of the film with Luther and uh, Krieger. Krieger and, um, and obviously Luther ends up becoming a key part of the Mission Impossible franchise, but you do have a point where it's the franchise depends upon the team. This is the problem with Mission Impossible 2 because it just became the Ethan Hunt show. Ving Rhames is in it for like a scene, I think, maybe two. Uh, he is very, I think he's like five minutes of screen time, so it's not quite the same. And it lost its appeal when it was just Ethan Hunt doing his thing. It's fun and everything, but having the team uh, establishes a great camaraderie in the film. And having these personalities mixed together is part of what makes the movies great, especially in Fallout where they're just firing in all cylinders. Yeah, Mission Impossible 2 is definitely the worst of all because I don't know what they were really thinking, but obviously it's it's probably they just wanted to go crazy action because the the action in the first film was so mind-blowing and like the... The, the, the break-in at CIA was incredible, and that train sequence at the end of the movie is phenomenal. I think that they really decided that they want to try to capitalize only on action, and it was a weird time for action films in general. Like, there's the style was kind of just, like, in limbo in a way. It, it, was, it didn't have, like, a full realistic direction yet. This episode is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Use our promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order at MoviePosters.com. MoviePosters.com has every kind of poster imaginable, framing, backlighting, glass, whatever you want, they got it. They also teamed up with us to sell our custom-made Raiders of the Lost Podcast posters. Head on over to our website, RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com, to check those out. Uh, we did a spoof of The Shining, Lethal Weapon, and then we are our custom Raiders poster. Uh, they're a lot of fun to make. Hope you guys enjoy them. Again, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com. Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com. Yeah, and uh, John Woo directed the second one, and he's famous for making action films in his country. And uh, the thing with his action movies, they're awesome. Some of them are really good. Um, Chow Yun-Fat's in a bunch of them. But the thing is, like, it didn't really work. Like, he's got, like, dubs flying around, and then there's that motorcycle fight with the other guy on the motorcycle, and... They crash their motorcycles in the air. Yeah, it was just, like, a little too, like, 90s cheesy action, and it just didn't feel right. Um, whereas now now Tom Cruise is all about realism in camera, um, it's practical, and make it feel believable. And the team is really the most fun part when we get to really get great character development, which which we get from three to six when we're developing Benji. And then Rebecca Ferguson is Ilsa. She's in the the last two films, so she's being developed in Luther's and every he's the only other character besides Ethan that's in every Mission Impossible film. So he's kind of in a way his, his oldest friend in the in the franchise. And obviously Ethan Hunt is the ultimate protagonist because Obviously, Tom Cruise has this, like, magnetism on camera. He's just—the camera loves him. You can't not look away when he's on camera. But as a protagonist, Ethan Hunt's one of the best you'll see because he's always in charge of where the story's going and where the action's going. And that makes us kind of develop this relationship for, with him where we're depending on him to bring us through the story and we're depending on his action to to push everything forward. And Ethan is uh, is obviously the character of—the defi defining character of his career, and— he, Tom Cruise understands what the audience likes about Ethan and what we what we love about him and 
what makes him a good person because he ultimately is a, a highly moral person and he always does the right thing, but he does fail a lot. He probably fails more than he succeeds, but it's learning from his failures and, and not giving up on his missions and, and always trying to correct his wrongs. And I love the opening of him in the first film where we, we can obviously see this guy is like a hot shot. He's, he's pretty young in the IMF. He's chewing that gum. He's got that cool leather jacket. He's, he makes the joke about the coffee while they're going through the mission and, Clearly, Jim in the film is a father figure to him, and and we learn all these fun things about IMF, like their cool code means of communication. The thing with IMF is it's always cutting edge technology for the time of the film. Like at that, obviously, if you watch this movie, it's very dated in terms of the tech, but at the time, it was mind blowing for them audiences back then. Just how the new ones are mind blowing for us. Yeah, and that opening mission it really sets the stage for that technology, which again. Pretend it's 1996. This is state-of-the-art stuff, and and the tactics of MI of the IMF, and you know, we one of my favorite parts about this opening mission is the POV shot of Ethan while he's going through the ballroom, and all the people are like making eye contact directly, breaking the fourth wall, and it's a really fun way to experience what it's like to be a secret agent for a second. Even though most secret agents, this is not anything close to what it's really like. <laughs> um, most of them are just working at desk jobs, believe it or not. But it's, it's really fun to like feel like Ethan Hunt for a moment. And one of my favorite aspects to the franchise is the opening credits because obviously we have that fantastic Mission Impossible theme. But I love how the credit sequence always shows the entire plot of the film. It's cut together very quickly, but you can see all like the plot points and characters and, and situations just for like split seconds. And I think it's a, a great tease because, yeah, you're watching it and you can see moments in the future, but it, you have no context to it. So it's not like it's spoiling anything for you. And then it excites you just to watch that unfold before the film. Yeah. And the plot of the first Mission Impossible film is this operation goes horribly wrong where they're supposed to photograph this diplomat who's a traitor stealing the knock list from Prague at this uh, banquet or this this ball it's a gala is it a gala sorry it's a gala <laughs> for the for the seals and uh <laughs> <laughs> save, save those save seals, the seals. <laughs> <laughs> and um what they're supposed to do is photograph the diplomat stealing the knock list and then steal the knock list from him on the high-tech floppy disk at the time, which I think it's like 300 megabytes it says on it, which is great. <laughs> but unfortunately, the, the mission goes wrong and everyone in, in in Ethan's crew dies under his watch. Everyone is killed. They're blown up. And his mentor, Jim, is shot and falls over into the river. And so basically, he becomes... The only one that survives this mission gone wrong, and clearly to him, they were sabotaged or people knew, but then we find out when he meets with Kittredge later, his contact at IMF and his, and his director, is that the operation was a fake invest is a fake operation to find a mole, is a mole hunt, and since Ethan's the only one that survives, he is assumed to be the mole by Kittredge. This is one of my favorite scenes in the entire franchise. It's a great dramatic scene. Excellent acting, and De Palma filmed it beautifully using a lot of Dutch angles and extremely low angles where we're literally like on the POV of the table looking up at the actors. Yeah, it feels it, like you're a napkin. Yeah, but it makes it's very suspenseful, and you can feel like dread creeping up on you because of the way it's filmed. And I think De Palma knocked it out of the park, and then uh, obviously it culminates in that great climax where Ethan uh, re throws that chewing gum red light, green light onto the glass, and he blows up all the aquarium exhibits and... Um, he runs, there's, it's a great stunt where, uh, Tom Cruise has to run through the shattering glass as it's exploding 
with like a hundred thousand gallons of water pouring up behind him. And they had one take, and on camera it doesn't look that complicated because it's in super slow motion the whole time until he's in the street. But if you watch the behind the scenes on set footage, it's like two seconds that this, this entire scene takes place that he has to get this complicated scene and stunt work done to the T or else they, they mess up the entire shot. Yeah. The reason why a lot of people might not like the first Mission Impossible is obviously the, the plot is a little complex and complicated. Again, they were writing while and they were filming. And it's slow, yeah. But um, I think what people don't like is they don't like to always be tricked by directors because what Brian De Palma, he like basically expertly shows you the things that he only wants you to see for the time being in the first act of this film. And there are so many like double reverses and double crosses that... I think what he wants to do is make you feel like Ethan. He wants you to make you feel like you can't trust anybody. Because I think I love twists. And that's what's great about the sixth one is there's a ton of twists, which we'll get into later. But the first one has a lot of twists. But you can also, it, it reminds me a lot of GoldenEye with Sean Bean in terms of like, he's part of the team, but he ends up being the main villain in a way. And they were shot and filmed around the same time. And actually, uh, the makers and producers of, of Mission Impossible and Paramount, they tried to develop a video game for Mission Impossible. It was going to be a 2D video game for, I can't remember what console, but then N64 was getting popular in PlayStation. So they developed um, a video game that looked a lot like GoldenEye, except way crappier, mm -hmm. which did not do well. And it's, you can find it, but it's supposed to be pretty bad because GoldenEye was so great. And I think they were just trying to... One of the best video games ever. They are just trying to like ride that wave too at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And I think Mission Impossible, even though it is kind of slow and it does take a while to get things going, it has two great set pieces that are just stunning. Uh, and the first one is obviously the very famous heist inside of Langley where... Uh, Ethan steals the knock list from that supercomputer and it's a stunning sequence and I think it's the highlight it was the highlight of Mission Impossible for many years until the recent ones knocked it out of the park too and just watching Tom Cruise perform this wire stunt was just it's the first time you see it it's just like you're watching on the edge of your seat like hope, hoping he doesn't fall down it still feels like that and I've seen the movie like 10 yeah. times but it still holds up to this day and it's one of the best action set pieces you'll ever see and it's it's so cool and complex and just fascinating and and I just love every part of it and it's it's also very funny too with the with the uh, programmer who's sick and constantly going back and forth between the bathrooms so there's actually a fun element to it as well yeah and we're just watching that drops of sweat pour down his glasses I get anxiety now thinking oh, man. about it and apparently um Tom Cruise kept hitting his head when they dropped him down um, because his balance was, he's top heavy because he's, I mean, that's how we're built. And so in order to, to stop this from happening, he filled his shoes with quarters to weigh his lower half of his body down. So that was able to allow him to balance perfectly. And so Ethan's plot throughout the film, because he's being tracked down by the IMF because they believe he's the mole, is he's going to try to expose the mole by stealing this necklace and then selling it to Max, the contact that he finds through the bible and is just his logic just deducing to with job 14 to look in job job 14 the bible verse and chapter and getting con in contact with max and so he's going to steal the knockless sell it to max and his his only stipulation is that he, max introduce the mole to ethan did you know that max is the mother of the white widow in Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember, so, yeah. Yeah, so in Fallout, the White Widow, she's giving that speech, and she mentions that her mother's name was Max and that she was a fan of Paradoxes. And then Max, in this film, the arms dealer, calls Ethan a paradox. Yeah, that's right. So Max is the White Widow's mother. I totally forgot about that. I remember we talked about that after we saw it. We yeah. were like, that's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and 
uh, connection to the films. Thanks for bringing that up. You're welcome. That's my job, man. But there's still so many more fun scenes. One of my favorite is when he has the floppy disk and, and um, Krigger thinks he has the real Noctilus and, and Ethan's like, oh, you mean this this Noctilus? And he's got the other floppy disk and he's doing the magic tricks and it's really cool and, and, and fun. But then, and then uh, obviously Krigger walks off camera and leaves the room angry. But this is, again, part of Ethan. I think he's learning and making mistakes because... He let the Noctilus out of his sight by giving it to Krieger when he should never have done that. Even though he had two floppy disks, he should have switched them down there when he could have. But again, this is him making a mistake that he fixes with his ultra confidence and, and suave. Way. And yeah, yeah, just being really smart. So again, this is he's learning as he goes. And Tom Cruise actually did that real sleight of hand. It's no CGI. It's yeah, really him. The entire plot leads to this incredible climax, the bullet train sequence in... I know that this wasn't shot practically on a real train. They built, they shot this in a studio with, with a green screen, but it still is absolutely incredible, and it's mind blowing, and it feels so real. And just watching Tom scale this train with the wind blowing so hard on him, and on top of that, they filmed it with no music for the film, and it just. All you hear are the sound effects, and it's such a fun sequence. Yeah, and again, we get a bunch of twists where a little earlier before the climax in the film, John Voight's character Jim comes back and he finds Ethan. And I love this scene where him and they sit down for, for coffee, and Jim's answering Ethan's questions. But Ethan's connecting all the dots in his head, and we're seeing what Ethan's thinking in this moment, which is genius because it shows that he's bullshitting Jim into thinking that he's on his side, but really he knows he's connecting the dots, and then he, this is how he figures out that um, uh, Jim's wife is involved as well, and then it leads to that. Well, he's not sure about Claire. Oh, yeah, you're That's right. That's so why his, his, his imagination changes to Jim blowing up the car. You're right, so then he, he wears the mask as Jim on the train to, to expose, what's her name? Claire. To Claire. expose Claire on Claire. the train. And then he shows uh, Kittredge, Jim, with the glasses. And so, it, again, some great twists that I think are just integral to all Mission Impossible films. I will, the only thing I'll call bullshit on is, is John Voight marrying that, that gorgeous Claire. Like, come on. He's pretty old in this movie. That's pretty old. She's very, very young, beautiful French woman. <laughs> Can get anyone in the world. They actually filmed a lot of this practically in terms of being on top of the train with a 160-mile-per-hour fan blowing at on John Voight and Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise actually obviously did his own stunts, so he did all these flips on top of the train, which are actually pretty dangerous. And ILM, Industrial Light Magic, they actually did all the computer graphic imaging for this scene, which is actually pretty great. And if you've listened to our podcast about Pixar films, then you know what we're talking about. And this is that great moment where he jumps from the train onto the helicopter and then the Mission Impossible theme starts playing and you're like, hell yeah, get him! It's Red great. light! Green, Green light. light! Then he blows up the, the helicopter and the helicopter exploding was actually, that was practical, practically filmed with a one-eighth scale miniature of a helicopter that they blew up. Oh, that looks great. But I, I love this movie. I think it was a, a great starting point for the franchise and Tom Cruise showed his real magnetism and his star power because... He was very famous when this movie came out, but I think this movie catapulted him into the stratosphere of being the biggest movie star in the world. And they brilliantly set it up for a sequel where he's on the plane now and he gets offered the movie, The Cinema of the Caribbean, I believe it was, at the end. Yeah. And then uh, it's the theme, and then we're obviously getting set up for him with a new mission, which is super fun. By the way, you could smoke on planes back then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to Mission Impossible Fallout, which came out in 2018, directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who also wrote it. Ethan Hunt and his IMF team, 
along with some familiar allies, race against time after a mission gone wrong. Fallout is my favorite in the franchise. It's one of my favorite action movies. I think it's a perfect film. It's incredible. It's thrilling. It's epic. It's emotional. And it's just a lot of fun and flat out just action packed. Yeah, this is one of those movies that when you go to see it after all the anticipation and, you know, the final trailer before the movie plays and it's all dark and then the the logos of the production company start coming up and you start getting the theme and then, then this, you take a bite of your popcorn. Yeah, this is the, one of those movies that like you just know it's going to be amazing. We saw this in IMAX and it looked incredible because they did a lot of IMAX footage in this film, especially in the entire helicopter sequence was IMAX filmed. And normally, like, the sixth film in a franchise is going to be... It's supposed to be hot garbage. I mean, no offense, Fast and Furious, but, like, we're, like after five, it's like, what is going on? The quality on? is just... Yeah. But, I mean, anything after four, but this is an incredible exception. I'm sure John Wick will be an exception, too, because every single aspect of the production of this film is incredible. The acting, the, the screenplay is phenomenal, the editing is great, the blocking, the action, the cinematography is on a different level in terms of... Uh, major action film it reminds me a lot of skyfall and how they upped up the artistic integrity of that and then even the sound mixing and sound design is fantastic like one of my favorite scenes in fallout is when ilsa's on the motorcycle just humming down that little alleyway and you just hear like the different poles flying by with with the noise and just like little details like that really engross you into this film and the cast is incredible i mean we got angela bassett we get alec baldwin henry cavill joined the crew uh, and on top of the already cast of Simon Pegg, Vin Grames, and uh, Rebecca Ferguson, and Tom Cruise, and I, everyone is just... At Don't the forget Vanessa Kirby. Oh, Vanessa Kirby. Yeah, she's great. And everyone's just at the top of their game, and it really turned... I think this one really felt like the a, a great ensemble for the franchise. Like, the, obviously, they had the team in the last one, but this one really felt like a big ensemble of a ton of great, high-class actors working together. Yeah, and Christopher McQuarrie, great director, but... He's one of the best screenwriters working today for sure, and that's why Tom Cruise always gets him to do all of his movies. Nine now. movies. For like the last 15 years, Tom always gets him to go. I mean, since F Valkyrie was the first film they worked on, maybe, I think. But Christopher McQuarrie's always been a, a script doctor. Like, he fixed Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. And also, he has won an Oscar. He won an Oscar for The Usual Suspects. So that's why I think he's perfect for forming these stories because— He's so great with these twists and an ensemble cast, like you said, and I think he's the perfect writer and director for Mission Impossible films. And I think Tom really fell in love with his filmmaking because they first made Jack Reacher together. And with Jack Reacher, I don't know if anyone, anyone listening to this has seen it, but it's got amazing stunt driving. That movie is sick. It's, it's fantastic, the first one. And there's incredible car chases that McQuarrie filmed with just few camera tech setups and... You often see Tom Cruise's face while he's driving, and you can see him actually doing the stunts. And I think Tom really, really fell in love with how McCory captured the action in that film, and that's why he tapped him to make these last two Mission Impossible and then the next two Mission Impossibles. And the characters are so fully formed and developed in this movie; it's it's exceptional. And we're bringing back the characters like Benji and Luther, obviously, but obviously, but then Ilsa Faust is back and. The four of them, they just have this rapport and they're developing their relationships on camera with us. And it just seems so real and authentic. And it brings so much more emotionality to the story and the plot. And it makes you root for these characters even more because they're kind of like a little family in a way. Yeah, and you could thank J.J. Abrams for Simon Pegg because he hired him as Benji for the third Mission Impossible after being a big fan of Shaun of the Dead. And, and Scotty on Star Trek yeah. that he rebooted. Yeah, yeah. so he's a, he's a, if Simon Pegg, like, 
thank he must be like thanking JJ Abrams every year. Don't do anything for him. <laughs> but Simon Pegg adds adds so much humor and levity and he's like not what you would expect for like a secret agent because by this film Fallout he's a field agent so he's full, he's in the on the action which we love because he adds a lot of humor like like in um Ghost Protocol when Ben when um is it or is it Rogue Nation when Tom Cruise is it, they're doing that car chase and Benji's in the in the passenger seat he's just like screaming as Ethan is just like whipping around the city and like driving down those steps and it's it's a lot of fun watching Benji's reactions while Ethan is driving there's actually a really fun fact about that action scene that you just talked about where they're driving through the city with Benji in the front seat and during the stunt driving of it Whenever Tom would do like one of those crazy hairpin turns doing like 70 miles per hour, he would flick on Simon Pegg's heat seat. So like throughout the course of the filming, like Simon Pegg's heat seat would be blasting and they're in like a very hot climate. So he'd be sweating and Tom Cruise is such a good stunt driver. He's doing 80 hard turn, hits the heat seat just to mess with Simon Pegg <laughs> just for fun. And, and that's just how talented he is as a stunt person. That's amazing. That guy is unbelievable. And uh, the the action in this movie is just top notch and it blows the other movies out of the water i mean we got that amazing car chase the motorcycle chase the halo jump the bathroom fight oh let's talk about the bathroom fight well actually yeah so the bathroom fight it it comes after the halo fight so this is a really long sequence we're going yeah. halo jump to landing onto the building and then trying to find um um Lau. lark Lau. oh john lark john I mean. lark what's so great about this movie is there aren't that many scenes it's it's there's just a handful of very long sequences and that's why the story is so good because it's not like there's 80 scenes of small bits and people are given exposition it's like the the really the movie really unfolds and it feels like you're there along for the ride can, can we talk what leads up to that first though yeah of course so the film opens up which i think is really interesting is with the nightmare of the doomsday scenario with the nuclear explosion going off where solomon lane he's coming back in this film again this is the first time i think in mission impossible where we've had a recurring villain in a yeah, role the first time and i think that is super fascinating i think that's great for the audience and also it's a really interesting nightmare because solomon lane is marrying ethan and julia who's supposed to be off being a ghost somewhere invisible and so it's it's really interesting that this is what ethan's thinking about while he sleeps and then the opening mission is really important for the entire plot of the film because ethan fails he fails this mission of securing the plutonium because with this film i think we learned so much more about ethan's characters how he won't let one person innocent life die over a million saved and this is shown where he saves luther and he saves his team instead of securing the plutonium which sets off the plot where now the plutonium is going to be out in the open so ethan this is one of this one of his greatest strengths that he's told to by the director played by alec baldwin is that he won't let one person die he also does a, a similar thing later in the film when after the car chase and those henchmen show up and there's that um, police officer that woman who has found the team uh, as they're holding solomon lane hostage and when the the henchmen show up, they uh, shoot the woman, and then one of them goes over to to shoot her point blank and kill her. And Ethan, even though these people are working with him, he shoots all of them dead rather than letting them kill the woman, risking blowing blowing his cover. Because what Ethan does throughout this film is he's faced with very tough decisions that he has almost no time to think about. And those are just two examples. And I think that. He just wants to save as many innocent lives as he can because, for me, it actually ties to the first film in the first mission that he fails where everyone gets killed. Even though that's a mole hunt and it's actually a sabotage mission by Jim in, that, in the story, I still think that 
the character of Ethan Hunt is still plagued by that opening of that of that mission in Prague that it haunts him to this day where he never wants to lose an innocent life again. Yeah. And I, I really love the opening of this film because it's a change of pace from we, you're expecting a big action sequence. That's how you're expecting the movie to open up because that's, that's how generally they do open up, uh, like four out of six of them. And so it was, a, it was so refreshing to see them, like we said, go back to their roots and then pull off this, this fake, basically theatrical scheme to get that, that terrorist to give him the code to his phone. And it's a lot of fun. And when the walls of the, of the set are taken down and then Benji shows up as, what's it, who's a wolf blitzer? Yeah. And he takes the mask off. It's just, and the music starts playing. You're like, oh, this is fun. That's great. Yeah. And the cinematography and lighting are exceptional. And you notice right away the first shot of Ethan Hunt when he wakes up, it's going to be an artistic film. And like, we have that beautiful lens flare of like the heat lamp that's next to him, like in the opening shot of Ethan Hunt when he wakes up. And if you look at this mo- movie, there's a lot of LED strips. Um, throughout the entire movie and the reason for this is because McQuarrie agreed to make this film but he wanted to make sure it looked different from the other one he made because he thinks one of the strengths of MI of the MI franchise is that all the movies look different exactly and so he actually had Rob Hardy do Fallout and then he actually switches it up with from Robert Ellswood, he did the fifth film. And so it's kind of like the Harry Potter franchise where there, there are four different directors that did the first five movies until they settled on David Yates to continue the vision that he had in his tone. But that's why the first five Harry Potter films, almost all of them have a different aesthetic and tone to the filmmaking, except for the first two by Christopher Columbus. Then obviously we have Alfonso Cuaron with number three. And then what's the guy who did number four? I can never remember his name. But then David Yates takes over for for Mike Newell. Mike Newell did four, and then uh, David Yates is five through seven. Then then obviously Fantastic Beasts, and that's exactly right. He wants that's one of the strengths I think to the franchise too is every movie looks different, and it just brings a new aesthetic to every an energy to each film. Want to hear something cool about the the mission scene? You don't even have to ask me. <laughs> so when Ethan is uh, learning about his mission and the backstory of the terrorist organization who are called the Twelve Apostles, there's a photo of the apostles on the screen in front of Ethan, and it's all 12 of these terrorists, and their eyes are blacked out with a black strip to hide their identities. But you can clearly see the second one on the left is absolutely 100% Henry Cavill. I have to look at that again. Because you can see his mustache, and you can see like his Jack Superman build. And it's like, that's 100% Henry Cavill right there in front of us. How did they not notice that? So that's like a little Easter egg nod that no, it went over all of our heads. Damn, come on, Ethan, you got to pay attention more. Yeah. But again, we're learning about this more about this character of Ethan Hunt. Even though we've watched him five times before, I think this movie shows so much more of who he actually is. And that's what people, he, like, he knows that people love this character and you have to keep showing what makes him lovable, what makes him... What makes audiences want to keep watching him is obviously we love the action stuff, but we just love Ethan Hunt. Yeah, and Walker, played by Henry Cavill, obviously, spoiler alert, who ends up being one of the main villains and the person who's orchestrating all this terrorist attack with the Apostles and Solomon Lane, is the exact opposite of Ethan. And he's actually similar to Thanos, where he's more than willing to sacrifice the lives of tens of millions of people to achieve his goals. And with the writing in that that manifesto that he writes... He says, and it's said throughout the film, is there cannot be peace. There cannot be peace without a first great suffering. The greater the suffering, the greater the peace. So he has a very different uh, vision of how to achieve peace. You're right. He has like a very similar mindset and 
goal as Thanos. 100%. 100%, bro. I, I loved Henry Cavill in this movie. It was so great to see him as the villain. Uh, love the mustache. He's even really fun as a protagonist who you think is in the first act. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's a, he's a great, fresh um, character for the film and for the franchise. And I, he just seems like a, a very intimidating, capable, charming character. And he seems to be like ultimate uh, in a lot of ways like the ultimate like super secret agent hitman that's what i think that's what's different about him and ethan is he, they insinuate that he's like an assassin yeah he's definitely an assassin but also i think angela bassett's character erica sloan she who is basically his commanding officer in a way at the cia she, yeah she expertly she brilliantly puts it as where where alan hunley prefers someone who's a scalpel like ethan hunt she prefers a hammer like Walker. And they and they actually the reason it's not that Walker is just assigned to him for no reason. Walker's assigned to the mission because of the mistake that Ethan made in the opening scene. And they might as they might think that Ethan goes rogue, which in case that uh Walker's mission is to take him out if he does. To snap his neck just like <laughs> Superman. <laughs> he broke his one rule. <laughs> and then um obviously we talked about the Halo jump and it's an amazing sequence, but I really was blown away by the fighting in this movie, which they hadn't really... There's some great fight sequences in the other films, but with this movie, I was just blown away by the bathroom fight. Yeah, it's the most like realistic fight I've seen in like a big Hollywood production. It just It feels like an actual fight. Yeah, and it's so great because... Um, the person they're fighting, uh, it's, it's not John Lark, but it's John Lark's contact. I can't remember the character's name. Lark Decoy. Did the that's, de what, that's what his character name the, is. The, okay, so, <laughs> so he's the Decoy Lark um, because the real Lark is Walker. Um, and it's, it's a great scene because this guy seems to be on another caliber of fighting than both Ethan and Walker. And he's just whooping them up, up and down the, the bathroom. And it's one of my favorite shots is... Um, like the guy knocks out Henry Cavill and then, then Ethan is just like on the floor, like on one knee, he's like out of breath and he's just like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and then he like charges the guy. So you can see like, it's not, it's not easy in there. You can see that they're really being, that a toll is being taken on them. And it's great to show that they're, they ha they're vulnerable and Ethan Hunt can be beaten up and can yeah. be beaten and killed because he's going to get his head blown off if Ilsa doesn't show up. Yeah. And what's really cool about the sequence is... If you watch it, like obviously these guys are being thrown all across this bathroom, and it, it, all these surfaces are like pointed and jagged and, and solid. And the reason why none of them actually sustain very damaging injuries is because this room is like uh, stunt proof, and so the floors are actually soft. Uh, like even like the sinks are like soft. Like these are all padded. And so when people are thrown into the floor, they're not really hitting a hard floor. They're hitting like a padded surface. And the, the entire thing is is painted and designed to look real, but it's actually all padded. And this is where sound mixing and sound design comes in. Yeah. These people who do Foley are artists on a different level. And that's why it feels so real because they're in charge of making all the sounds seem real. The first act of this movie is just rolling because right after this scene, it does no the entire yeah the entire three movie, acts of this movie because then Ilsa shows up and there's this great sequence where. Ethan's like trying to figure out what to do because that was the guy they were going to steal his face and make a mask of it. Not like actually steal his face, but like they're going <laughs> to try to make it a face. Yeah, I'd copy it. And um, and then Walker was going to play him in the next scene. And so Ethan has to go out there and meet the White Widow who's never met him before. And then it's a great, it's a great little joke where 
Walker's like, so we're, we don't have a plan. And then Ilsa's like, you must be new. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that the scene where they're making the, the shot in the, in the bathroom stall where they're making the mask, because what I think Macquarie does so effectively throughout this film is again, he has these not just big twists, but little twists and like these little scenes where, where the, the person who's unconscious, the decoy, he wakes up, but then he pretends like he's asleep and we have a twist where he wakes up and he starts to beat on them again. So it's, it's fun to have these little twists all over the movie. Yeah. And also like, Things don't go according to plan, like Walker slammed the laptop over the guy's head to knock him out, but then that messed up the ability to make the mask. So there's always complications that arise that ri that make the conflict even even uh, higher and greater, which is great writing. And then he meets the White Widow, which is we get to meet Vanessa Kirby, who I don't think I'd really seen her in anything at the time. The Crown. The Crown. But she, I hadn't even started watching The she Crown She plays yet. Um, the Elizabeth Sigurd sister, Yeah, Margaret. she's great in The yeah. Crown. But I, I personally hadn't seen her in anything up to that point, and she blew me away. She's... She's so good in this film, and I can't wait to see her in the next one. She's obviously been blowing up the last few years with a ton of great roles, especially Pieces of a Woman, which just which just came and out. In Fast 8, I think. No, yeah. no, um, Hobbs vs. Shaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hobbs vs. Shaw. She's actually good in that. I watched that movie. She's the best part of it. <laughs> <laughs> with the White Widow, Ethan Hunt as John Lark has made this deal um, in order to get the plutonium, but part of the deal is... The being is uh being part of this mission to release Solomon Kane and extract him. I mean, not Solomon Lane to extract Solomon Lane from custody. Again, this is where we have this crazy conflict of interests where Ethan's the one who caught Solomon Lane, but now he has to capture him and extract him. And I love the shot where Hunt Walker goes to me. He's like, "You're the guy who caught him. How long are you gonna? Keep, how long is he gonna keep that a secret?" As great as the franchise has been, it's been missing a great villain. Over the course of multiple the, films. Yeah, it just hasn't had a, uh, an amazing villain. And Solomon Lane in Rogue Nation was a fantastic villain. And then having him come back, it feels like it's just like the caliber of like a great Bond villain to James Bond. Because you can you even name the other villains in the movies? Not really. I can just imagine them kind of. But it's kind of similar That's to what I mean. the new Bond film is actually going to have Christoph Waltz again. Yeah. Who I think his character was terrible in the last Bond film. But I think maybe Christoph will be able to... Actually, they might salvage it. They might it. be able to salvage the character because when you waste a great talent like that on a crappy villain, it's just such a bummer. Yeah. But I think this, Solomon's the first great villain they've had. And the thing I love about this exchange is Christopher Quarry tricks the hell out of you here because it's the, the sequence where after they go through the plan and then we think that Ethan's being part of it and he shows the mission and they, they kill all the police officers and they they extract the the prisoner, but then they show Ethan also killing a, a cop and for a moment you think it's real even when he pulls the trigger you're like oh my god there's no way ethan would do that but then you realize that this was the plan that they were wanted to do but then ethan because he's ethan hunt is gonna just flip it on its head and do his own thing it's a great sequence where and the lauren balf did the music for this he was Hans zimmer's protege for years and now he's been breaking out in video games and movies and he really excelled with the music for this is the best music for any of the mission impossible films and danny elfman did the first one but this one's a lot better and and lauren balf did this really great thing of taking the themes of mission impossible and and slowing down the theme and also just using parts of the theme like in this sequence where he just uses a bit here and a bit there but not the entire theme and then it, when the climax of the scene happens, then he shows you the entire theme. And the music building up to the scene is pro is the key to the scene. Yeah, this is something that Hans has been doing for a long time in all, a lot of his film scores. And it just it adds so much depth to the, to the scenes as we're going through the film. And it's a great sequence where Ethan crashes into the armored car. 
And then what happens with Solomon Lane's character is he's inside the armored car that goes underwater. And this is actually a practical stunt they did as well with the actor Sean Harris, where he had to hold his breath for a minute while the the while the armored car was being flipped upside down. And there's a great shot where McQuarrie keeps the camera static inside of the truck. And then so the only thing that's moving is the water. And you just see the water just flowing around in all sorts of crazy directions because of the the uh, the physics of the moving of the moving car. It's an amazing shot. I love it. And then of course Benji and Luther they'd uh, get Solomon out. And then also we have a great scene where Ethan and Walker have to escape on motorcycle, but Ethan's won't work. And so we have again this sets up that fantastic motorcycle chase of Ethan outrunning the police in France. And they actually shot this in the streets of Paris. Um, but because Paris and France rely so heavily on tourism, they were only given a window of two hours each day from 6 a.m. to uh, 8, p- 8 a.m. to film this sequence. So they spent as much time as they could prepping in the very early mornings, and then they just filmed as much of the, of the stunt driving of the motorcycles as they possibly could. And then an- another great little twist where Ethan crashes his motorcycle, and then he jumps into those bushes, and we think, oh, no, he's going to get caught. But we peer into the bushes, and he just cut his way through a net and escaped part with, of the plan. on the boat. So, again, these little twists throughout this entire film, big or small, they all add to the story. And then we get, um, like we mentioned earlier, that scene when the police officer finds them and, and Ethan kills the henchmen. But then, as they're driving off, look who shows up, Ilsa Faust. And Rebecca Ferguson was fantastic in the, in the previous film. She was a great new addition, and then she just blows you out of the water again. She's a, a fantastic actor, and I love her in this film because Ilsa feels like she is a, a reflection of Ethan. She, like she's a, a version of e- a female version of Ethan of this of this secret agent, spy, whatever assassin who has morals, but they work in this line of business where they have to do bad things to get things done. And hurts her especially where she's trying to. Uh, save her own life in terms of being in trouble with her own government. So she's being forced by her government to steal Solomon Kane, Solomon Lane from Ethan. Yeah, she's basically being blackmailed. So that's her motive to go against Ethan. And then again, this is where Ethan has to make a very tough decision. Does he give up Solomon to Ilsa, who he clearly has feelings for, but then he decides to just drive straight through her, risking killing her, which is a really tough decision for him to do, which is why later on when they meet, he asks if she's okay, which is a really nice thing to do after hitting her with the car. Hey, are you okay? <laughs> I almost killed you. <laughs> Solomon Lane goes, he, I think he says, like, that's interesting. <laughs> that's Ilsa. <laughs> and this, uh, the car chase is amazing, and there's this great sequence where um, the car um, is driving down a set of steps in the city, and what Tom Cruise had to do was he had to um, drive the car off a six off six steps and while the car was spinning and flying in the air he had to shift to first gear turn the steering steering wheel in the right direction and then hit the gas all while airborne and then there's really just two more sequences left in this movie despite there being like 40 minutes left and the first one is when IMF secretary Alan Hunley comes and meets them while they have Solomon under custody um in interrogation and, and this is Alec Baldwin yes yeah, Alec Baldwin and they actually create a uh, Mission Impossible decoy interrogation in a way to trick Walker into revealing his true identity by putting Benji in the mask as Solomon to trick him into saying the information that they want to hear. And ironically, Walker was making fun of the masks in the opening of the film, 
and now he himself got tricked by the mask. But unfortunately, the mission, this goes wrong, and Hanley, Hunley gets killed, which is too bad because Alec Baldwin was great in this role. And I think Sol- he just had too many characters yeah. now, probably. This is a big cast. But Solomon and Walker escape, and we have the great chase sequence of Ethan going after Walker on foot, and it's just a lot of fun. It's hysterical because of Benji and with the computer. He's like, oh, no, I had it in 2D. Sorry. Or why, why does he keep running in circles? So it's actually really fun, but also intense at the same I, time. I love the scene where Benji's like, jump, just go. What are you doing? And then and Tom Cruise is like, I'm jumping out a window. It's like, oh, whoops, I had it in, two, in 2D. <laughs> Good luck. And just like we said, this is where Tom Cruise broke his ankle jumping from rooftop to rooftop because the guy is an animal. And then he performed most of the scene with a recently recovered ankle. So a lot of this running he did on a recently broken ankle, which is insane. Yeah, and then Walker and Solomon get away on the helicopter, and then they're able to track him down, track the warhead down to Kashmir, which is where they have to find and disarm the two nuclear warheads. And this is one of the best sequences in the film because... We get more emotional connection for Ethan in the film where Julia is there. And this is Solomon has done this on purpose. He's he's planted Julia here on this medical mission to help people. It's like a, a medical clinic, I think, or something like I that. I think they're giving vaccinations to people. Yeah, and but they're cleaning up shop already when they get there. And Ethan, I think this brings a lot more I mean, this makes it much more personal besides obviously he's trying to save millions of people, but having Julia there just brings so much personal emotion to it as well and also it involves i would say the most impressive stunt of the entire franchise and that's the helicopter chase and apparently they figured out some way of topping this for the new ones which i can't wait to see i mean who knows what they came up with because the guy keeps coming up with new crazy things to do like oh well there's that footage of tom cruise driving a motorbike off that giant ramp off a huge cliff and then jumping off the bike and then parachuting, parachuting. down. I bet that's the opening of the movie. Like that's just like an appetizer. He's just getting coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Ethan, can I get can you get me a medium? <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> so I can't wait to see what they come up with. But just like we said, we were talking about earlier, this helicopter chase sequence is absolutely stunning. And uh Henry Cavill actually is dangling out the side of the other one with that machine gun. And apparently it was like still very dangerous for him. He wasn't piloting, but the, the things Tom Cruise did in this sequence is just unbelievable that a person managed to do this. The guy can, it seems as though whatever he can put his mind to, he can do it. And I love the way that Macquarie starts the sequence where he's chasing after the helicopter right before it starts to take off. And again, this, and the, this final sequence was entirely shot with IMAX cameras. And so Macquarie playfully switches the aspect ratio by having those black bars on the top and bottom of the frame just slowly slide away, and we get the full IMAX image, and it's a really cool way to set it up. I think it's like he, it's like so you don't even notice it happening. You yeah, know what I mean, it's fun. Rather than when you watch sometimes a Chris Nolan movie in IMAX, you'll you can see the 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 jarring switch from sixteen nine widescreen to IMAX sometimes. Yeah, hundred percent. But this is a great sequence because it's a a fantastic ticking clock counting down to ultimate destruction and uh the reason why it's so dangerous is because once these these nuclear warheads go off they will pollute the water in the area and this is water that funnels down to several countries which billions of people will drink from so it it will have drastic effects on the lives of most of the people within asia and Macquarie, he expertly uses that technique of the ticking clock throughout this film. Constantly, there's there's a time limit. There's You have two hours to do this. You have um, like a couple weeks to do this. Or here we have, he has, 
I think it's it starts at like 15 minutes yeah. to in a helicopter somehow get to Walker in another helicopter to get the detonator, and then we he has the final fight on top of that mountain. Yeah. And there's four minutes left to get the detonator before the nukes go off. But also he has to fight Walker, who not only is super pissed off because his face got melted off, <laughs> but also what McCory did. He's Superman. <laughs> what McCory did throughout the film. Is he set up the brute strength in how much more powerful Walker is physically than Ethan Hunt throughout the film? So showing that this is going to be a huge test on for him. And on top of this, they filmed this cliff scene. It's not a set that was built. It's actually a real cliff in a real location, and it's so dangerous that the time they were filming because the climate was the weather was very uh, dangerous because uh, they were dealing with intense storms and incredibly high gusts of wind and. When they first scouted this location on the cliff, the crew, what they got there for like 15 minutes or so, and they were taking photos and scouting out the scene. But then a storm came, and the wind got so bad that the entire scouting crew had to crawl back because otherwise they would have been blown off the cliff. And this scene, um, they were dealing with very tumultuous weather the entire production. I think it took them two weeks to film the sequence, the, the fight, and they had to keep delaying production and shutting down because the weather just got so dangerous they could not risk having Tom Cruise and Henry, Henry Cavill actually out there. But visually, it's amazing. It looks stunning. Yeah, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's one of the, it's probably the best fight scene of the movie. And obviously, satisfying death of of a Walker. And like an insane climax. He saves the world, and we have the beautiful. Well, we he, we don't even get to see him push the detonator, which is brilliant. We just show Ilsa, Luther, and uh, Benji like praying to God, cutting the wire at the same time that Ethan gets the detonator at the same time too. And I love when they ask him later on like how much time was left. He's like, you don't want to know. <laughs> He's like the usual. The yeah, the usual. But McCory's really smart. It's a little trick where he does where just when the clock's gonna tick to zero, um, it cuts to the sun, and we can't tell is that a nuclear explosion or yeah. is that the sun. And then the camera pans back and we see that it's the sun and Ethan Hunt has the detonator switch in his mouth that he like pulled out with his teeth. And it's a great little reveal that uh, keeps the suspense going and the mystery that I really loved. And then they set it up with Julia, obviously, and her husband making sure that Ethan's okay and realizing, like, hey, you're not actually a doctor, are you? But um, it sets it up with Ilsa and Ethan clearly are probably going to develop some sort of relationship now. And because They're going to make secret agent babies. Yeah, it's like they've just been together such through such dramatic and they're so similar yeah and the, yeah, like you said they're reflections of each other so obviously that i think is going to be a major plot point going on in relationship between the characters which i'm really excited to watch develop i love fallout it's my favorite mission impossible movie it's one of my favorite action movies i think it's perfect i think it's thrilling and so much fun and i've seen it many times already it's only been out for a couple years but i adore it yeah and that concludes our mission impossible episode on the original and then mission impossible 6 fallout Hope you all enjoyed this episode. Make sure to go to RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com. Get your merch. Find out all of our areas of content. Become a patron. Thank you so much to everyone who has. And have a wonderful day, evening, night, wherever you're listening and watching. Take care, everyone. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast.